Welcome to Zen Bones, ancient wisdom for modern times. This is Mark Lesser. Why Zen Bones? Our world is in crisis and ever-shifting, and now, more than ever, more wisdom, clarity, and courage are essential, especially in the world of work, business, and leadership. In this episode with psychiatrist, writer, and mindfulness teacher Dan Siegel, we talk about interconnection and the deep inner work and the work of the heart as well as the intellect. We touch on uh, identity and belonging and the wheel of awareness. Lots of great material. Let's dive in. I'm here today with Dr. Dan Siegel, is a psychiatrist and author and clinical professor uh, and and also a buddy of mine. Dan and I have uh, actually even taught a workshop together and I've brought Dan in for various things. Anyhow, I'm super excited to be here with Dan. Dan, good morning. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Mark. I'm very excited to be here with you, an old buddy and colleague and Glad we could have a conversation this morning. Me too. Me too. Whenever I've brought Dan in to do things and in my co-teaching, Dan's intellect is dazzling. People get just start having, um, I could feel, not maybe, maybe, I was going to say, I won't edit myself. People have orgasms, you know, with the, the level of excitement that you bring in your, in your ability to present uh, really complex ideas and make them accessible. I really appreciate that as well. But I find I'm always feeling your heart in a way even more than your intellect. And I think, I think that's where I want to start now is by asking you, what's in your heart these days, Dan? Well, that's that's such a beautiful invitation, Mark. Thank you. Um, my head, <laughs> uh, where you're talking about the intellect, wants to just make one. Uh, statement first and just to support because uh, I'm trained as a scientist you know there there's certainly a poetic way of you asking like what's in your heart and that's beautiful and I'm going to respond from that way in honor of that poetic notion of heart but there's some new you know views that you know people like Antonio Damasio beautifully expressed that we have centers of information processing which are you know, parallel distributed networks of neurons and other kinds of tissue that are able to literally learn and adapt and experience things. So one is in the head and we call it the brain because it has language, but it looks like there are two other brains that preceded the head brain. And that's the heart brain and the intestinal brain, which you could just call the gut. So so for any scientist listening, I just want to make a plea that if you don't like poetry, that's fine. Everyone can have their preferences. But I think poets were on to something way before the scientists knew it. Uh, and that is that we have these bodily centers of intelligence, if you will, or processing information. And so, Mark, you're asking me in a way, instead of going to your head, Dan, which you use the term intellect, which is totally appropriate, right, from a science point of view, reasoning and data and all these, quote, objective things, go to your subjective sense in the heart. Now, you didn't tell me to go to my gut. What's your gut telling you, which we can talk about too. So when I let my head have its words and language and stuff, and then I say, okay, Mark is asking about the heart, go there. So it's a lot of 
both sadness and a lot of love, you know, uh, about our connections with one another. So all the incredible violence that's going on with racism continuing to go on uh, in our country, the United States, is so profoundly painful. And just to honor that, you know, with the white skin I have, the white skin you have living in a white dominant society like the United States, um, you know, even if our ancestors came over relatively recently, the colonial history of the United States, and for anyone who's not used to thinking about that, they may say, I don't want to listen to these two people talking about it. But it's really important from a scientific point of view to acknowledge, you know, what some people call the positionality or context. So my heart really aches for the incredible violence going on to people who don't have white colored skin, who aren't in the dominant social group. So the heart is really all about our relationality. So that's one place there's a lot of pain. And I'm doing a work through uh, an organization I work for, the Garrison Institute, where we're really trying to work on issues about the art and science, if you will, of social justice, looking at racism and the idea of that social construction of division we call race, that's powerfully talked about by Isabel Wilkerson in her book, Cast, you know, that we need to all be responsible, all of us, people of white skin, people of non-white skin or in the non-dominant groups for that. So that's part of where my heart is, but filled with love because I work with people of color and together, you know, we find a way to have this, what we call a we community, where we realize each of us has our individual experience in the skin encased bodies we're in and whether we feel included or not, we can find a way, we in this group, to have the individualities, me and we. So part of it is there. Another part of the work I've been doing in my heart is about our relationship with nature. And I'm filled with a lot of sadness and pain and what I think the eco-philosopher in Australia, uh, Glenn Albrecht, calls, you know, earth emotions. You know, when I'm doing work with Joanna Macy, um, who lives up near you, you know, who's now 93. And, you know, she's a visionary about how to take the heart feeling of grief. And Albrecht, you know, calls it uh, solastalgia, this longing for a biodiversity that we used to have. And since you and I were kids, we're about the same age, you know, we've lost two thirds of the biodiversity on the planet. And people know that in their bones, you know, that's getting to the gut feeling, but but in the heart, there's an ache. And what Joanna Macy has beautifully talked about in her book, Act of Hope, and other books, you know, that I absolutely highly recommend, you know, is that if we don't begin with the grief of the heart, then our heads will get burnt out because they're going to try to avoid that painful feeling uh, that, that Albrecht calls earth emotions. And, you know, part of it is grief, but part of it is to open up to the joy of the wonder of nature that my dear friend Diane Ackerman writes about in her book, you know, um, The Human Age, uh, The Anthropocene. And, you know, in this human age, we have been affecting Earth in a negative way. But the good news is, if we look at the mechanisms, which I do in this next book I've written, Interconnected, if we look at the mechanisms beneath racism and beneath environmental destruction and other pandemics, if you will, even the way we've handled COVID, you can actually identify, and this is really where my heart is at, a feeling of misplaced construction of the self. 
So this is more like a gut feeling in me, but my gut tells me that our survival, this is what a gut feeling is about, not just about relationality, but about, you know, empowerment and agency and, and righting wrongs. And, and this gut feeling is we can do this. We can do this if we identify this, you know, isolated self that is probably at the heart of all these problems. So my heart is filled with both pain and also incredible optimism that when you look at the creative power of the human mind, if it just realizes its mistaken identity as a self being separate, you know, since it's the human mind that caused it, the great news is, and now here's my head talking a little more, you know, is that these painful feelings we feel in our heart, or I feel now anyway, and the gut oomph that we feel, instead of, and Joanna and I were talking about this the other day, you know, instead of seeing these as all threats to survival and we get all agitated and terrified and we want to fight or flee or freeze up or faint, all these Fs of reactivity and we burn out, instead we can become like dancers where we consider these challenges as dance partners. So every morning when a part of me is, you know, feeling overwhelmed and potentially going down the burnout road, I realize that we can be a dance partner with challenge. So my heart is actually filled with hope and all sorts of um, incredibly opening feelings that together, if every day, like the conversation you and I are having now, every day, if we just awaken ourselves, we can take this as your beautiful podcast title is, you know, we take contemplative wisdom, we combine it with modern science that's just catching up with what indigenous knowledge has told us and, and contemplative knowledge has told us. It's catching up to the idea of busting out this view of a separate self. I think humanity can turn it around. So I'm extremely hopeful. I feel grateful to be here with you. I feel a sense of awe of what the possibilities are and compassion for not ignoring the pain of social injustice and environmental destruction, but acknowledging it, moving with it and through it to identify what's going on and trying to change it. So that's my gut center, my heart center, my head center, all trying to respond. So, but you just wanted heart. So I kind of got those others in there. <laughs> no, that's great. There's, and there's so many, so many ways to go there. Uh, curious as to your thoughts on this. Uh, I think this comes from a, a talk I heard by one of a good, my good friend, Norman Fisher, who you've met, you know, Zen, Zen, Zen teacher. And he was surmising that part of the root problem is that in Western culture starts with the idea of that, that everything is, by default is great and that it's only because we've done wrong things and made bad choices that we fall into this realm of fear or sin or, or, or less than is, is kind of this embedded in how Western cultures look at self and identity. Whereas Buddhism and a lot of Eastern thought starts with pain and suffering as the default and that our task in life is to learn how to transform pain and suffering into joy and possibility and a more peaceful, more whole way of looking. And, and I thought that was, um, that was really a profound kind of sense of some insight into the sense of self and identity and trauma. There's a different relationship of trauma. Uh, I mean, in, in any case, I think what you're talking about, the pain of racism 
the pain of what we're doing to the planet, to, na to nature, and how to feel it, how to let it in. Um, I also have, I, I have uh, Joanna Macy's book, Act of Hope, on my kitchen table right now. Yeah, beautiful. And she just came out as amazing with the second edition of it. As a 93-year-old, she, with her co-author, uh, you know, made the second edition, which is a beautiful edition. You know, I want to come to the thing you're raising, though, you know, about what Norman Fisher is suggesting is the difference. I, I don't, I'm not enough of a scholar to confirm or, 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 or push against that, but just to go with his uh, in, invitation to, to look at that difference. Um, one thing uh, that I try to talk about in looking at the self is, in fact, that we, we have two origins of wholeness, if you will. One is the, the, the most immediate one, which is, you know, that we, we grew up in a womb. And as uh, the fetus grows in the womb, um, you don't have to breathe, you don't have to eat, you don't have to protect yourself, you don't have to seek comfort or connection. You are enclosed, literally, you're at one with the womb, you know, you're in this uterus environment at one with the uterus. Now, those obviously are parallel to the statements that people say, aren't we one with the world or one with the uterus universe? And in some ways, I think, because the nervous system remembers things, it has something called implicit memory, it can remember the feeling of something, even if it can't label it with, oh, I remember when I was this age, such and such happened as an event. That's more like what's called explicit memory. It looks like implicit memory is formed in at least the last two months of our time in the womb. So one origin, I think, of a feeling of wholeness is in fact the experience we all have going through. And in a sense, that's original wholeness or goodness, if you want to use Norman Fisher's term. So that would lean us in the direction that we start there. The other thing is just from a physics point of view, you know, and I talk about this in Interconnected, that, you know, if you, if you look at uh, the deep study of energy, then in looking at physics, quantum physics in particular, you know, one way of understanding what physicists have discovered, and this was the cover story of Scientific American, a very conservative public science translation journal in um, July of 2018. This was, I know this month because it was the month before a book I wrote called Aware came out where I was saying that what ultimately came out in Scientific American was that the physicists have shown there are two realms we live in. You know, there's a, uh, a Newtonian realm that Sir Isaac Newton figured out where um, things are large objects like molecules or like your body or my body or a bicycle or a planet. And these clusters of large things are called macrostates. And they have certain properties for reasons we don't need to get into. But when you look at the mathematics of the Newtonian principles of physics, which are, are true, um, they involve things being like entities, like a planet or your body or a bicycle. They're like noun-like things, entities, that have the qualities of spatial separation and separation across something that uh, we've named as time, 
which in physics terms is really called an arrow of time, which is a directionality of change because of something called the second law of thermodynamics. We don't need to get into it, but the, the bottom line is that arrow of time only exists in the Newtonian realm. So in a practice I do every morning, I did it just before we got on here called the wheel of awareness. You know, you, you go around the rim of all the things you can be aware of, but then you bend the spoke of attention that you've been moving around into the hub itself. And what people have described, you know, and you and I did this together in a, in a workshop, is they describe a timeless state where everything is connected and it's filled with love and open awareness. And you can remember all that with the acronym COLE, connected, open awareness and love. And you know, this is with 50,000 people before the pandemic, I did this in person. So you could say, well, what's going on? So it looks like in contrast to the Newtonian realm, the physicists have told us there's a quantum realm where there's a space called the quantum vacuum that the, the quantum physicist uh, emeritus professor, Arthur Zions, you know, likes to call the sea of potential. It's, as Arthur says, the formless source of all form. So in some ways, if you think about the Big Bang, you know, reality began with everything being one. Then from this potentiality of energy emerged stuff that became entities of space and time separation. But the, the quantum realm has these qualities in ways we don't need to talk about here, but that have the reality that spatial separation isn't what it is in the Newtonian world. In fact, in some ways it's meaningless and certainly time does not exist. So what I would say about what Norman Fisher says is whether it's being at one with the womb or tapping it to pure consciousness that you could do with meditation. I do it every morning with the wheels hub. You know, if you look at all the research now in psychedelics, my way of understanding it uh, is that it's basically dropping the brain out of its commitment to being in a body and having a Newtonian perspective on things and accesses this more connected, timeless space, which you can do every morning without psychedelics. And when Decker Keltner, Professor at Berkeley, gave the mystical experiences scale to people doing the wheel of awareness, they got the same scores they would get as if they were on psilocybin, you know? So it was a fascinating moment to realize you have the capacity to drop your mind out of, I think the origin of the separate self is we only live in the Newtonian realm. And instead, we can access this more wide open realm that contemplative practices, they don't talk like that, but they do talk about the relative versus the universal. Indigenous teachings have taught about this for also thousands of years, independently from contemplative practices. And basically what they're saying is that when you think the self, and I'll translate this from an interconnected point of view, when you think the self is separate, you're getting lost in the, the view that only the Newtonian reality is what exists. And I feel, and with my colleagues and students, you know, we take the scientific perspective that you can use consciousness to go beneath these illusions of separation and start to feel literally in your heart, in your gut, and then with your head's perceptual shift, you can realize the intra-connected nature, not even interconnected where there's one thing here connected to another thing there. I was in a forest once on a retreat, three days alone, but it was not alone. It was actually all one. 
and I couldn't find the word. People were asking me to describe it. I said, it's not really interconnected because that word means I'm here and the, the trees were there. It was more like a wholeness. It was like intraconnected. So I went home to type the notes out on the experience and the word processor kept on switching it back to interconnected. And I came to discover that intraconnected, a wholeness within the entire system is not a word. So then I said, okay, well, is there any word anywhere like that? And people don't have words for that. So I said, okay, well, we need sometimes a word to communicate with each other and get it like that. And so Mui, which had, I'd been using already, became like the way of experiencing you're both within the body and you're the wholeness of your relationships. And when you combine the two, you're an interconnected identity. Yeah. And in the language of uh, Zen, the, you know, the, the practice, the kind of core practice is how to be fully in the relative world and at the same time how to be fully in the absolute world which you're you're kind of describing i was just reading a passage from uh, shinryu suzuki the founder of the san francisco zen center where he he describes that it's somehow it's uh, transcending the self transcending birth and death and that we have to completely live in the it's through the world of birth and, birth and death and then i also just i i am also noticing my uh, my day job you know i describe myself as a stealth Zen teacher working in the business world. These concepts actually matter in how people show up running companies, how people show up in all in all our relationships, whether it's with our partners, our children, our parents. There's something qualitatively different. And it's again, there's the there's the intellectual part of it, which I think is important, but then there's the sense of how to how to embody, how to embody these concepts and practices. Yeah. Exactly. You know, in, um, in interconnected at the end, there's two appendices and both are experiential practices that allow you to experience it. <clears throat> One is this wheel of awareness. And I was teaching in a parliament where they're having a lot of conflicts in the government. And we did the wheel. And one of the parliamentarians comes to me during the break. He goes, I didn't want to share during the sharing time. I said, yeah, I noticed that. And he goes, do you want to know why? And I said, yeah. He goes, you know, that part when you bend the spoke right into the hub. And I said, Yeah, I, I know that part. He goes, and now he gets really quiet, his eyes get filled up with tears. And he goes, never before in my life, have I experienced such a feeling of being connected to everyone and everything. It was so filled with love. And now he's crying. So there's this silence between the two of us. And I gently said to him, So you didn't want to share that he goes, Oh, no, no, no. He goes, if I mentioned love, to them, he points to his parliamentarian colleagues, he goes, they would think I was weak. So there's this silence. And then I said, can I ask you a question? He goes, yeah. I said, so when you're making federal policy, when you're setting up national law, are you leaving love out of the reasoning? And his eyes get really, really big, he starts wagging his finger at me and he runs over to talk to his colleagues. I don't know what they said, it was their private conversation. But it's exactly like you're saying, Mark, is that if people have like a view, like it's all a dog eat dog world and, you know, we got to really just beat the others, you know, however you experience that companies, governments, neighbors, you know, it's the opposite of love and it's the opposite of the connection and the open awareness. So, you know, it's so interesting. I've never had anyone complain that, you know, you can walk on the land and you can jump into a swimming pool or a lake and swim. 
But the properties of water and the properties of walking in the air as you walk on the land, they're very different from each other and no one gets agitated. The reason, and I know it's a head thing, so you may push back a little bit about this. I completely agree with you. People need to experience it. The, the benefit of also having the head join in in what the heart and gut know is true is then we get all three centers of intelligence working together. So what I say to people is, you know, do the practice, feel it, experience it. Then let your gut lead you that way. And I'm going to give you some, you know, indigenous teachings, some contemplative teachings and scientific teachings that all are saying the same thing. There are two realms and you don't get upset about water and air. So let's just name it. You know, now I got to say, I taught this once at a, um, a big mindfulness slash meditation conference. And some of the other teachers got really agitated and talked to me and said, don't talk about this. You don't know for sure that consciousness emerges from the quantum vacuum. I said, I never said I knew for sure. I just said, here's what quantum science says. Here's what, you know, surveys of whoever decided to talk of 50,000 people all over this planet have said, the only thing in science I can find that at least correlates with it is the quantum view of the quantum vacuum and the quantum realm. I'm not saying it's true, but let's consider it as a possibility. And they go, well, just because it's possible doesn't make it true. I said, I never said it was true, but consider it. And when people get that view and do a practice like the wheel or whatever practice in, in Zen, you do it. And I quote Thich Nhat Hanh in the interconnected book, because, you know, I think these teachings of the universal realm, I think indigenous teachings of the wholeness of everything and humanity's place in nature are very conciliant. That is, they go together, even though they came from independent sources, they are so conciliant with not what we find in brain science, except to say the brain can get open or closed, fine. When it gets open, I think it comes to be like a, an antenna for the reality that there is a quantum realm. And the fun thing is, once you see this, and once I teach this to people, what used to freak them out and uh, get them like confused what to do with it, now they go, oh, I see. If the mind is an emergent property of energy, which is what I think it is, then you realize energy flow, first of all, is not limited to your head. It goes throughout your whole body, like you're asking to go to the heart. Um, and it's not limited by the skin. So it's in our relationality to other people. People look like us. People don't look like us. All of humanity and all of nature. And then when you take it one step further, you go, what is energy? And it's the movement, as quantum physicists tell us, from possibility to actuality. Then you realize when you get to that origin of possibility, for some people, it freaks them out. They want to be certain, certain, certain. And possibility is maximal uncertainty. But then as they do these practices, they realize, wow, actually uncertainty has a synonym. It's not only possibility, it's freedom. And that's where, you know, when people start to, as you're suggesting, feel it and not just have these ideas, you know, but actually feel it. And throughout Interconnected, what I try to do is say to the reader, I'm going to take you on a journey we have a bunch of stories across the lifespan, but please do a practice like these integrated movements we have in the appendix or the wheel or whatever is your practice. So you can experience these two realms and come with me on a journey through stories across literally 
before you even conceived, all the way across the life. And we and and in terms of dealing with death, I know when my father died, you know, he was a mechanical engineer, you know, the ultimate Newtonian guy. And when he was getting right near death, this view of this open space of possibility really helped him in very rapid order go from being terrified to feeling at peace. Thank you for sharing that that story. Right at the beginning, though, and you, you've used the, you know, you use the, the, the term freak, freak, freaking out. People freak out about this stuff. But, but we're all we're all so um, we're very sensitive, sensitive creatures. I've, I've noticed that it takes a certain level of security. How do we feel secure enough to, to be uncertain, right, to, to enter the realm that it takes? It's a, a bit paradoxical, but maybe obvious about yeah that we all need to find our own sense of and maybe this is where the both i think the the three realms of practice that you're talking about right the, the there's the intellectual realm and the maybe more spiritual realm the head the heart and the body uh, all need to um, align well i'll tell you two two people come to mind in workshops uh both had a really terrifying experience doing the wheel practice they got into the hub and, you know, as one person said, it killed her. Another person said it totally um, got her disrupted. And then with each of them, when they learned about this head-based intellectual view that the hub of the wheel drops you into the quantum realm where your old view from the Newtonian realm of the rim was where you can get a certain identity I'm Mark, I'm Dan, you know, and whoever they were, they're both very high powered people. One was running a, a company, the other was running a meditation center, but had never done a meditation so deep, she said. It was a research center. Anyway, for both of them, what was amazing, as one said, when she saw this graph we have that shows you how the wheel allows you to drop energy into its origins. So instead of being lost in what we call these plateaus of filters that have certain peaks of identity, for example, I'm Mark, I'm Dan, all these noun-like ways we construct certainty in our lives because it, it's freaky, it's, it's panicky, it's, you want to be certain to be safe, right? So she said, one of them said, she was smiling and there was a group of 150 people in the workshop. And so we were about to close for dinner. And I said, do you want to share where you're at now that you've seen this diagram? And she says, just look at my face. So we go, okay. And do you want to add more than this beautiful smile? She said, yeah. She goes, the wheel brought me to pieces. I totally fell apart. But now I'm at peace. And for the rest of the week of the workshop, it was the first day of a week-long workshop, her best friends were with her. I kept on checking with her and her friends. She was at peace. Because we cling to these constructed ideas of a separation and who we think we are as nouns. But when you drop into the hub and you start to feel comfortable with it instead of panicky, as this person who ran the research center said, once I sat down with her and I said, here's what energy flow looks like across these probability patterns. And when you get into pure awareness, you're dropping into this open field and it has different qualities that if you've survived certain difficult things, which she had survived in her childhood, you're going to really, really want to know certainty and be, a, in her case, an academic and researching and all this stuff. And when you drop into openness, it's like you are just the universe. 
And I say just in quotes, right? So once she saw that, you should have seen her face go from this panic stricken, like what happened to me? What happened to me? I'm a researcher in this area. I know all this stuff. How did this happen to me? Why am I falling apart? She just like melted into, she goes, oh, wow, like that, you know? And I said, yeah. And she's written to me since, this is years ago, and it stays with her. Because once you realize the spaciousness, like this morning when I got into the hub and it's like this all over these, just, you know, like a water flow of potentiality flowing, instead of being freaky, it's just a pleasure. And when you feel the love, and this is the weird thing, Mark, you know, I've done this with so many people, those three things, it's like it's a tapestry of the universe. It's this open awareness, this connection and love are like three threads of a singular tapestry of what the universe is made of. And we get this privilege in these years, we get to live in these Newtonian bodies to actually dip into that. So for both these people, I can just say what used to be a freak out now became freedom. I'm, I'm often um, quoting a couple of lines from a poem by uh, Tony Hoagland, where he says, uh, do you remember that time and light are kinds of love? And love is no less practical than a coffee grinder or a safe spare tire. And so I, I think, I think Dan, uh, I think we're going to have to uh, think this is the end of part one of this conversation. Uh, we, we could go on and on. I, I, I remembering that um, uh, seeing you uh, speaking at a conference, and this was many years ago in Washington, D.C., and uh, I, ha I, I usually have this rule that no one should speak for more than 20 minutes, but you are the exception to that. Um, that, <laughs> that Don't tell um, my wife. <laughs> <laughs> that I think in that conference, uh, I felt like I didn't want you to stop speaking, and in some way, it's hard for me to, to bring this, this conversation to a close. Yeah, well, you know, because it's, it's a conversation, you know, a turning, the verse, con with, we turn with each other. So my deepest hope is that this conversation this turning together that you and I are having, everyone listening, all of us in humanity have this opportunity to converse, to turn together. And if we identify the empowering ways we can, it's going to be a win-win-win situation, right? If we realize the, you know, basically the error of identifying the self in the body in a Newtonian way and open ourselves up to a life of joy and gratitude, you know, and, and really awe. And I'm, I'm very grateful for you, Mark, for, for really initiating this conversation and uh, to be continued. Conversing and, uh, and conspiring, you know, breathing together. I, I wonder, um, are you up for doing a short, just a literally a, maybe a three minute, just a, some practice or any closing words or anything you'd like to just to end our you know if you go to my website drdansiegel.com and do the wheel you'll know you know you'd really take about 20 minutes to do it and and get the fullness of the experience so so i appreciate you're asking me to do just three minutes you really can't um get into the spaciousness but i can just do a a brief kind of reflective space if you we can do that so just let your your um, body get comfortable lying down or sitting up or standing whatever wherever you are walking and just let your 
self experience this. Let yourself take your hand and put your thumb in front of your eyes. So this is going to be a, an, an exercise of perception. And notice how you can look at your thumb. And the words I'm saying, you can look at your thumb. That's fine. You have a body and, you know, most of us have a thumb and we can look at it with the eyes. If you are not able to see, then just try to feel your thumb with your hands if you're blind. And that's fine. Just notice and focus attention on that thumb. Now, let that attention go beyond the thumb. So if you can see, let your eyes take in what's beyond your thumb. And it might be the room you're in. It might be a forest you're walking in. If you're at the beach, it might be the ocean. And if you can't see, just try to feel beyond the thumb to the space surrounding that body you were born into. So in a spatial way, in these bodies we're in, in this simple exercise, you are adjusting a lens, a lens of perception, whether it's with your fingers if you're blind or if you can see with your eyes. And just like we have a perceptual lens that can look at the thumb and look beyond the thumb, you have a lens of identity that can focus on the skin encased body that you were born into. And if you're hearing me and making sense of these words, you do have a body that we know for sure. And that body is real. And it lives in the Newtonian realm of an object that's larger than an electron. So it's an accumulation of large things, we call it a macrostate. And it has dimensions that we're really familiar with. Time, we run out of time. We have a clock to measure time space you know we know the size and weight of the body this volume to this entity but when you look beyond just the newtonian body you're in just like you could do with your perception beyond the thumb you come to realize that the subjective sensation the perspective the point of view the agency being a center of action those spa the spa if you will of self doesn't have to be constrained and limited to the skin encased body. You have an identity lens that allows you to see beyond the body and to see the sense of the world that's not only, quote, around you, but that is you. You can take the perspective of the whole, the intra-connected whole, not just interconnected where you're there and things are there and everything's connected, that's beautiful. But beyond that, there's a a way in which we live within systems and your body is a node of the system, but who you are is the whole system of energy flow, living matter, the whole of the universe. And when you do this, you may have a feeling of, whoa, and I'm the whole thing, I'm interconnected to everything. And it has a feeling of deep peace and connection after you get over the initial, oh my God, we're, where did I go, in quotes, where's the I? And that's where we have this fun word, we, where you say, yes, the inner I, the inner body, that thumb, that's your thumb, is a me. It's real and it's really important. But you are also your relationality, the we. And when we put those all together, your relationships with all of humanity and all of nature, as the we, the me and the we is we. And we is an interconnected identity that can help us as a humanity move forward in a positive, generative direction. 
So we thank you for being on this journey together, for noticing your identity lens and stretching to include this broader view of who we are. Thank you. And thank you, Dan. And thank you for who you are and who we are and, uh, and for the good work that you uh, continue to do in the, in the world. Much appreciated. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Listen in each week for interviews, teachings, and guided meditations. You'll receive supportive tools for creating more meaningful work and mindfulness practices to develop yourself, to influence your organization, and to help change the world. Thank you for listening.